got my first pair of glasses when I was in the third grade. I wear contacts usually now. Um, but I got my first pair of glasses in the third grade, and they were big and, and gray and ugly, and like they were, like here's my face, the glasses were about this big. They were, I'm pretty much, pretty sure they were twice the size of my face. And they were so thick that I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure I should have been able to see the future in them. I might have been able to see the future, I'm not sure. But, but you know, when, when, you, when, when you can't see and everything's been distorted and blurry and, and you put those glasses on and suddenly you're able to see, um, that's a pretty amazing feeling. You, you didn't even know what you were missing before. Um, my third grade teacher noticed that I kept walking up to the chalkboard and, 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 and reading, and then I would go back to my seat, and she noticed that I kept squinting all the time, and she'd say, She'd say, uh, Matt, can you see? And I'd say, yeah, of course I can see, because I didn't know that I couldn't see. Uh, I didn't realize that my vision was distorted. Um, and so, but Miss Thompson wasn't convinced, and so she kind of persisted. And, and so my mom takes me to the eye doctor, and I saw one of these vision tests. Maybe you've seen one of these vision tests before. And so the doctor starts at the bottom. I'm sure we have. The doctor starts at the bottom. I couldn't read that. Couldn't read the next one. Couldn't read and finally, we get to the big E on the top, and he says, what's that, what's that up on the top? And I said, ah, is it a box? Is it a house? Is it a square? And he's like, okay, we got to do something for you. And so, so my vision is really, really, really bad. Um, and, and so we get glasses, and uh, you know, my vision was so bad that not only could I not see writing on the chalkboard clearly, I couldn't see people clearly. I couldn't see people's faces clearly. And putting those glasses on for the first time, I didn't even pay attention to how big and ugly they were. Um, although now, looking back, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, couldn't we have sprung for some different glasses? You know, I'm pretty sure those weren't stylish even then. But I just noticed that everything instantly came into focus. Everything instantly came into focus. And I could see clearly, my eyes could focus, everything wasn't blurry or distorted anymore. And I could see words. I could see people in a way that I hadn't been able to see before. So I share that today because we're beginning a study of these one another passages of Scripture. All the way through the New Testament, there's all these one another's of Scripture. Uh, Several of them uh, are up here. Uh, We're told over and over and over again to love one another. We're told to encourage one another, to be humble toward one another, to wash one another's feet, to pray for one another, to confess our sins to one another. Uh, to serve one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens. Um, Over 50 times, there's these 50 different passages in the New Testament how we as believers are to relate to one another. Um, And and, and those one another scriptures, they speak to what Christian community is about. Uh, They speak to to how Christian community is intended to look. Um, The thing is, we were created for community. Uh, we were created to have deep communion with God and, and deep community with one another. And most likely, though, you have experienced unhealthy community, right? Everybody in here, because people are sinful, because people are a mess. Most of us have probably experienced unhealthy communion, community on the family level, on the church level, the work level, school level, friendships, marriage, whatever, we've experienced unhealthy community. And community has let you down. And I'm willing to bet that you've let community down. But we like to talk about how community lets us down. But no matter how much we've um, been disappointed in people, um, there continues to be something in us that desires connection. 
right? I mean, no matter how many times people let you down, no matter how much you wish you just didn't want to connect with people, no matter if you're the biggest extrovert or the biggest introvert the world has ever known, this isn't about that. There is a desire put in every human heart by God for connection. No matter how much people let us down, no matter how much we let people down, that, that desire continues. And it, it's there because God put it there. And so as we think about community, there's some extremes uh, that we want to watch out for. And one extreme when it comes to community is, is this total rejection of community. Uh, that's isolation. When I think about isolation, I think about the movie Castaway. Remember Castaway with Tom Hanks? Tom Hanks is on this island, and there's no human community, and so what does he do? How does he respond? He, he creates his own, doesn't he? He takes a ball, and he paints a face on it, names him Wilson, and that's the thing about us. Even in the absence of community, even in our most isolated states, we still want community. We still desire connection. Um, the other extreme, oh, there's isolation over here, but there's also extremes of really unhealthy community where we're so fused together that we can't tell where one of us ends and the other begins. I think about like the Stepford Wives, where everybody, that movie, where everybody, all the wives look and talk and act and think exactly the same way. Or you think about something like, uh, like, a, like a cult group and everybody drinks the Kool-Aid, like people cease having this ability to think for themselves. Obviously, that's unhealthy community. So on the one hand, you've got total isolation. On the other hand, you've got this, this total um, uh, fusion together. Uh, but, but between those two extremes, there, there is something healthy. There is such a thing as healthy biblical community. Um, and if I'm going to be part of healthy community with others, you know, one of the things that's going to be really, one of the foundational things that's going to be really important for me to learn or I'm going to have a really hard life is that I've got to learn that I'm part of the problem. Do you know that? Like in my marriage, in my friendships, um, in my parenting, in, 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 in church relationships, in co-workers, whatever, I'm part of the problem. That's so why Jesus calls us to address the what in our eye that, that, that blocks our vision? The log in our own eye. I'm part of the problem. I have to recognize that. And after, just like I reckon, you know, in the third grade, listen, in the third grade, I could have said to Miss Thompson, hey, I see fine. Just write bigger words on the chalkboard. Miss <laughs> Thompson, who do you think you are? Stop judging my vision. That wouldn't have worked. I can't go around and say, you know, just, just, just put your face really close to mine so I can see. Write bigger words. No, my vision was distorted, but I didn't know it. And when it comes to our spiritual, our emotional vision, we never see as clearly as we think we do. And the thing is, we get into a lot of trouble when we start thinking that we see a lot more clearly than we do. When we've got everybody else figured out, usually the person we don't have figured out is this guy right here. So sin puts life out of focus. We know this. All the way back in Genesis 1, God creates you for communion with himself. He, he creates Adam and Eve. He, there's this original state of blessedness. The truest and deepest thing about you isn't original sin, it's original blessing. God creates you in His image and He says, this is good, and He, and he blesses us. But then what happens two chapters later in Genesis 3? We sin, we rebel, we choose our own way, and that sin distorts 
It's what sin did in the beginning. It's what sin continues to do now. It distorts our vision. It, it blurs our vision. It, ca- it causes us to not see God clearly, to not see ourselves clearly, and to not see each other clearly. Sin puts life out of focus. Jesus puts life in focus. And, and, and what I'd like us to see today is that life comes into focus when we focus on Jesus. Life comes into focus as we focus on Jesus. And every day, my focus is pulled away from the Savior and to self. And the more my focus is on myself, the, the more blurry everything becomes. But, but life comes into focus as I shift my focus from self to the Savior. Life comes to focus as I focus on Jesus. So if we're going to see ourselves clearly, if we're going to see each other clearly, if we're going to practice the one another, serve, love, bear each other's burdens, pray for one another, confess our sins to one another, I mean, if we're going to practice those, you know, we've got to daily shift that focus. We've got to refocus. I can't love others, I can't serve others if I don't recognize my own need to refocus. If I don't recognize that, that I'm wearing a lens. Richard Rohr, um, a powerful author and, and Christian leader, uh, writes, or says, he says, people, and where's Richard Hartram? Quoting you some Richard Rohr. Uh, Richard Rohr says, people don't see things as they are. People see things as they are. Let's just sit with that for a second. People don't see things as they are. People see things as they are. How I, how I see situations reveals who I am. Who I am determines how I see situations. And, and, and I go around with this myth that I see everything clearly and everybody else is just crazy. You ever walk around with that myth? And often we think we're seeing clearly, and maybe we're not. Because the thing is, we all wear lenses. And what repentance looks like is, is, is coming to recognize, repent of, and renounce daily those lenses that I'm so apt to put on. You know, before I got my glasses, I used to go to my, my grandma and grandpa's house, and I would put on their glasses, and it would, like, the floor would like, have like, like tunnels in it, and I would be like walking around. I'm starting to see like why I need glasses now. I don't know if that contributed or not. But if you put on these other lenses that aren't made for you, sometimes in the morning I'll get up and I'll accidentally put Sonda's glasses on and they don't help me much. I, I, can't, I can't function with Sonda's glasses, but I just grab them on the, and it doesn't work. And, and there's all these unhelpful lenses that we put on and often we don't even know we have them on, but it's interpreting how we take in information, how we see the world. And so, so maybe we have a lens that says, I've always got to be right. Maybe we have a lens that says, I've always got to be the Savior. Maybe we have a a lens that says, I'm the victim and and everybody feels sorry for me. Maybe we have a lens that says, comparison, comparison, comparison. Maybe we have a a, a lens that, um, that, that says, I need people to fix me. Whatever it is, that lens keeps me from seeing clearly. We know what I'm talking about? And it affects everything. Just like my glasses gave me clear vision, the wrong glasses give us distorted vision. So I invite you, really God invites you. Psalm 139 says, search me, O Lord, know my heart. Take a second, take a minute. Say, God, what lenses am I reading life through that maybe I don't even know are there? Am I viewing life through a lens of materialism, comparison, ego, arrogance, shame, insecurity? What is it? How can I renounce that? 
Repent, lay those aside, exchange that old set of glasses for some gospel glasses. Because there, there's some Jesus glasses you can put on. There's some gospel glasses you can put on. And see yourself clearly, see God clearly, see others clearly. Whatever our human lens is, it distorts our view of God, ourself, and others. But life comes into focus as we refocus on Jesus. He gives us this whole new lens. He gives us this whole new set of glasses. And putting off the old lens, putting on the new lens, that happens when you, when you give your life to Christ, when Jesus saves you, but that also is a daily practice. It's like every day I take my contacts out, I put my contacts in, I take them out, I put, I, you put your glasses on every day if you got them. Every day there's this daily practice. What lens am I going to wear today? Put off the old, put on the new. So I want to read to you one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Colossians 3, spoiler alert, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And if you're looking for a passage to study, to sink your teeth into, to build your life on, to meditate, to memorize, I encourage you, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, a great passage to memorize. And then once you get that down, go ahead and, and memorize chapter 3, verses 1, all the way through verse 17. This is uh, the, one of the most beautiful things ever written about what communal life together is. But notice where Paul begins. Paul doesn't begin with rules. He begins with identity. He says to the Colossians and he says to us, if you know Jesus, this is who you are. He tells the Colossians and he tells us who we are before he tells us what to do. Colossians 3.1. Since then, or if then, that if really has the sense of since, since then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See what he does? He says, hey, you've been raised with Christ. That's where he starts. He starts with identity. Man, you're a person who's died with Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if, if you don't know Jesus, this doesn't apply to you. But if you do, if you place your trust in Jesus, that means you died with Christ and you've been risen with Christ. Set your mind, verse 2, on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you, verse 3, have died. And your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you will be revealed with Him in glory. You have died. He didn't say, you checked a box one time. You walked an aisle one time. You invited Jesus into your heart one time. You died. You died. And your life is hid with Christ in God. He says, you died with Christ, and you've been risen with Christ. Uh, Bob Goff, in his book, Everybody Always, which I really recommend, he tells a story about his dad uh, selling him this truck. When Bob was a young man, his, it, he buys this old truck from his dad, and his dad says, you're going to want to change the oil on this. And every time he sees his dad, his dad says, you're going to want to change the oil on this. And he never changed the oil on it, just because he didn't like to be told that he needed to. You ever had stuff like that? When I first read that, I was like, come on, dude, change your role. But then I started thinking. All the interactions I had with my dad and with others. I put an app a while back on my, on my, on my phone to, uh, to remind me to drink water because I want to drink more water. And, and I had to disable the app because it was angering me because I didn't want it to tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. You're not my boss. I was drinking less water than I was before just simply because I don't want to be told what to do. Maybe you can relate to that. We can start a 12-step group for us or something. But 
Bob Goff writes, some of us have been told what we want to do our whole lives. He says, we've, should, we've been told we should want to go out for sports or not. We should want a college education or a graduate degree or a particular career. We should want to date this person and not that person. He says, none of it is mean-spirited, of course, and no one means any harm. It just doesn't sit well with us. He goes on to say, instead of telling people what they want, we need to tell them who they are. In other words, instead of telling people what to do, he says, we need to tell people who they are. He said, this works every time. He says, we'll become in our lives whoever the people we love most say we are. We'll become in our lives whoever the people we love most say we are. Before Paul addresses behavior, he addresses identity. And he says, if you're a Christian, if you place your faith in Jesus, you've died and you've risen. Get this, dead and risen people don't seek revenge. Dead and risen people don't gossip. People have died and risen, uh, 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 they, they don't lie. People that have died and have risen don't objectify themselves or others. Not because they're trying to earn something, but because they're becoming something. We're really good, I think, at telling people what to do. I don't think we're so good at telling people who they are. You know, think about in parenthood. How easy, or teaching, or whatever it is, how easy is it to say something like, you're so lazy. Man, why are you so lazy? Whose parent, whose child are you? And how much more effective is it to get down on the knee and say, let me see your muscles. Can I see those those muscles? Man, those are big muscles. Hey, can we use those muscles? Which is more effective? How easy is it? Oh, why are you making such dumb choices? Don't do dumb stuff. How much more effective is it to get down there on the knee and say, man, you got a good brain. You got such a good mind. Man, let's, let's use that. Let's use that, okay? That's what Paul's doing here. He's getting down on our level like a father, and he's saying, hey, don't you know, you died? You died with Jesus. And you've risen with him. That's who you are. He's telling us who we are before he tells us what to do. And if you want to invest in children, you want to invest in adults, you want to invest in anybody, we gotta, we got to move to that place of identity. Who are you? Not just what behavior do I want from you. Who are you? And you know who else we got to remind who we are? we got to do that with ourselves. Who am I? Keep embracing the resurrection life, Paul's saying. You've died and risen with Christ. You've experienced God's yes over your life. Now let's walk that out. And he goes on and he talks about putting off things and putting on things. And it's really easy for us to take that list of put off and put on and just make a bunch of rules out of it. Are there there parameters for the Christian life? Of course there are. But he's not saying do these things in order to become God's child. He's not saying do these things in order to experience death and resurrection with Christ. No, he's saying do these things because. Because you've died. Because you've risen. Because you're God's child. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He doesn't say, hey, babysit your sin and get people to really nurture that. He says, kill that sin. Kill it. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't you love, or do we love, that Paul puts gossip and greed in the same category as sexual immorality? Whoa. Whoa, you mean God isn't mad at one and wink at the other? Paul's, I believe, asking us here, what kind of community do you want to develop? And, and he addresses our speech, and he addresses our sexuality. The, our speech and our sexuality are these two areas of our life where there's so much beauty or so much horror. There, there's the force and the power to do so much good or so much harm. And we can say all we want that gossip doesn't hurt anybody and lying doesn't hurt anybody and promiscuity doesn't hurt anybody, but you and I know that if you have a choice to live in a town or live on a street where everybody's running around with each other's spouse and everybody's lying and talking bad about each other and then there's a street over here where everybody's serving one another in self-sacrificial, uh, 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 pure love, I know which street you're going to choose to live on because we know what works and we know what doesn't work. Paul's not saying put off this yucky stuff and put on this new stuff so you'll become something hey there i am so you'll become something hey do that because this is who you are you're becoming something what kind of community will we cultivate you know morning routine in the mcgowan home um, is is an interesting event um he says down in verse nine don't lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices have put on the new self which is being renewed. That image of putting on and putting off, like putting off the old lens and putting on the new gospel glasses or like putting off an old set of clothes and putting on a new set of clothes that governs this image. There's this daily practice of putting off the old and putting on the new. Not to earn, but because you've been made something. So morning routine in the house, now that we're up to six children in the house, three of whom are five and under, on most mornings, there's someone who will hold a pair of pants and they're like, I don't know what to do with these. I've never seen pants before. <laughs> or underwear. And like, underwear? Do you put your face in this? Is that what you do? You put your arms through this? And there's just total like, confusion about the process of putting off the pajamas and putting on the school clothes. And you know, we all kids, kids do the craziest things, but you know what? We are a lot like that. Man, I just, I just don't know if I should keep on doing this thing that's killing me or not. You know, in the mornings at the McGowan house, putting off and putting on is a process in your life and your discipleship, putting off the old and putting on the new is a process. It's a process that takes every day. It's a choice we make every day. But dead and raised people live a certain way. Paul goes on, I want to go back to verses 3 and 4. He says, You have died and your life is hid with Christ and God, and when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with Him in glory. You died. Your life is hid with Christ and God. That's something really mysterious and beautiful he's talking about there. He says, When Christ who is our life is made visible, you will be made visible with Him. When Paul's talking about this intimate one another relationship between you and Jesus, you know, before you can have a healthy one another relationship with anybody, 
you got to have a healthy one another relationship with Jesus. And your one another life with Jesus, that determines your one another life with others. And if you're at a place where in life just everybody's disappointed you, everybody's let you down, you need to look at your one another life with Jesus. People stink, man. I can tell you more than, I mean, I, 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 people will let you down. People are terrible. But, you know, if, you, if you're looking around, you're saying, I'm, I'm just the only person getting it, and everybody around me is just, is just a loser. I'm just, I just want to urge you, check your glasses. Check your glasses. Be careful. Thank you, Amanda. There's coming a day when Christ will be revealed and you will be revealed with him. Another way to say that is with our friend Gladiator who says what you do in life echoes into eternity. In other words, practicing the one another's matters. Washing feet matters. Forgiving sin matters. Bearing each other's burden matters. Loving one another matters. Even when it seems pointless. A great example of this, and I'm closing up, a great example of this is a man named Nicholas Winton, or maybe Nicholas Benton. We're going to call him Winton because we're in America. Um, he was born in 1909, and he died in 2015. So that's a pretty, pretty amazing long life, isn't it? He was a British humanitarian who organized the rescue of 669 children. Most of them were Jewish. He rescued them from Czechoslovakia on the eve of the Second World War. See, he didn't say... Hey, the government's, uh, you know, the government's rounding up Jews. No big deal. He says, you know what? I think I want to do something about that. Practices one another's. He, 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 he embarks on this operation later known as kinder transport, which in German means child transport, children's transport. Went and found homes for 669 children and arranged for their transport to Britain. And for 50 years, nobody knew about this. Nobody knew he did it. Hundreds of children he rescued. He came to later be called the, Brit the, the, uh, uh, the British Schindler. But in 1988, a TV show in Britain called That's Life did a piece on him. And they invited him. He's sitting down here. And you may have seen this video on, 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 on YouTube or something. They're sitting down front in this theater, and there's all these people around him. And there's a moment where the announcer starts reading all these names, and she says, if you're here today and you owe your life to Nicholas Winton, will you stand and all these people stand up who exist and who live because he practiced the one another's. There's a day that Jesus is going to call your name. And there's a day that your life will be revealed. There may be a day where somebody says, you know, you... You worked in the church nursery, and you probably didn't think you were doing anything for the kingdom, but my parents trusted you, and because my parents trusted you, they came to trust Christ, and because they trusted Jesus, I came to trust Jesus, and I'm here because, because you were in there washing feet and rear ends. Somebody might say, you know what, you shared the gospel with me at work, and even though you thought I wasn't listening, I was. Thank you for not just telling me what to do, but thank you for telling me that I'm a beloved child of God. I know you thought I didn't hear you, but I heard you. There may be somebody that says, I was that kid in your class who never listened, but you know what? I might not have listened, but I was watching you. I was watching you. Thank you. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to call your name and your life, meaningless as it may seem now, your life will be revealed.
when Jesus is revealed. Live for that day. Live from that day. And the beautiful thing about this doctrine we call the justification by faith is that Jesus has taken that final day and he's moved it all the way back to that day you placed your trust in Jesus. And when you placed your trust in Jesus before you've done anything, he says, I accept you, I love you, I say yes to you simply because you've said yes to my faithfulness. What an amazing thing. Your life will one day be revealed with him in glory. We live for that day. We live from that day. You may not get your pats on the back in this world. In fact, it's probably better if you don't. But one day you will be revealed and your life will be revealed when Jesus is revealed in glory. So life comes into focus when we focus on Jesus. As we gather around this table, this communion table, we're reminded of who Jesus is. Jesus died, risen, returning, present here and now. But we're also reminded of who we are. Needy. Beloved. Children. Hungry. Desperate. And at this table we find that there is enough. 